Welcome to Consuming Jung, um, episode one, maybe of the only episode, because we still don't know for sure if we're committing to this entire book. Um, but for this episode, we will be consuming Jung, um, just a fairly small section of Jung. Um, I don't know, did, did you feel like it was small, Tim? It was small, yeah. There was an introduction, which at first I didn't read until I got a hold of another copy of the book. And the introduction was actually longer than the section that we read. Uh, but it's so dense, there's a lot of ideas. So I think we could probably um, talk about it and have a quality conversation without like exhausting what was there. Cool. Yeah, um, that the introduction, that's by the, the interviewer, right? The guy who did that, in, that video interview with you? Yeah, and uh, it didn't seem like they had the interview and then the book came not because of what they interviewed about, but they just became friends and people used him or another, a third party said, hey, um, I would love for Carl Jung to write this type of book and I'd like to, you know, you have, have asked you to coerce him into doing so because you have such a good chemistry, clearly, and Jung clearly likes you. And then it followed from that. I, have, I don't have, the, like, the clear story in my head, but it's something to those lines. Yeah, and, and it, an interesting part of that story, which will get us into the topic as well, is that at first Jung uh, refused uh, fairly firmly some, somewhere, in the, and this is part of what the forward is about, where uh, he... Well, he notes that when Jung makes a decision, all of his friends say that it takes him a while, but then he's quite firm in it. And so when he asked Jung to write this book, uh, sort of the idea is to write about his thought, but to the general public rather than to, um, you know, established psychologists and scientists. Uh, at first, Jung just said no, and then he thought that was the end of it. Um, and then one of his other friends kind of pushed Jung to do it, but then also Jung had a dream um, where... And this part gave me goosebumps. I wonder if I can find it really quick. Uh, but um, where he says that he had a dream where he was speaking about his ideas and, and, and the people understood him. And something about that gave me goosebumps. I don't really know why. Uh, but, that, but that dream then sort of helped to change his mind. Um, yeah, here it is. Um, he dreamed that instead of sitting in his study and talking to the great doctors and psychiatrists who used to call on him from all over the world, he was standing in a public place and addressing a multitude of people who were listening to him with rapt attention and understanding what he said. Um, and then, yeah, it says a week or two later, uh, when, they, when this other guy asked him again, Jung was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. And then he had a bunch of caveats and stuff. Um, and, then, and then the book that ended up that they ended up putting together i didn't know this when i suggested we read it but it's actually not written by jung completely it's actually broken up into sections uh, of which only the first one jung actually writes and uh and then him and his disciples so to speak uh, actually put all this together which is interesting to me because um it's it feels like something in between these two types of books you might normally read so on one hand you might read a book written by the person whose thought you're exploring. So, you know, Nietzsche or, or someone more modern or whatever. And then on the other hand, you might read analyses, analyses or summaries of that writer by other people. And it's, this is interesting because it's, it's something in the middle. It's kind of like an, a collaboration project, which is, which is rare enough in writing to write something with somebody else. So 
um, yeah, it's it's interesting in, in a, a bunch of different ways. It makes me think of, I mean, scientific papers tend to have multiple people publishing on the same ticket. Like they, mm. they share responsibility. They're editing each other's work. Maybe there's a primary investigator. But this isn't a scientific uh, document. This is sort of a for the lay person uh, an analysis of psychology or Jung psychology, perhaps. But I, I can't help but think of it as, as both, right? Like you're saying. So it's it. But it seems to me that Jung, while he didn't write them, must have had a, a, a huge influence on them. I think he was the director, the primary investigator. But in this medium, which is different, this is a a book, not a scientific paper. So I, we, I was thrown by that as well, yeah, because we were like, let's read Jung. We're so we've heard a lot about this guy. He's this renowned psychologist, and then we end up a, picking a book that was only partially written directly by him. So it, it is interesting, and it's his last book too, which isn't like we were reading first. The first book we're both reading of his is his very last book, but seemingly also the most accessible because it's written to be accessible. Right. Uh, I think I think we've stumbled onto a good choice here. I have the sense that it's going to be very appropriate uh, for our purposes. Cool. Yeah, I'm excited too. Um, I was, and of course, Karamazov is our other book, and we read a section of that, and it was also interesting. Um, of course, what we said when we were talking about the Karamazov book was that, or at least what one of the things I remember saying was that. It's a kind of fiction where you could read it and then you could get a lot more out of it, um, which, you know, that would have been um, good in some way. And maybe we'll continue with that either now or, or later or something. But with Jung, it's, um, I guess it's it's more directly, uh, I'm, I'm more directly learning something. I, di- I did get the sense when I read Karamazov, the, the Brothers Karamazov, the first time that I learned something, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And it was kind of a much more intuitive or, uh, well, I don't know, it's, it's a fiction, even if it's a fiction with wisdom in it, and somehow that makes it harder to put to words, whereas the stuff with Jung, I feel like it's going to pay off at least in a more, uh, I don't know, an e- a way that's easier to measure or, well, I mean, it's just reading nonfiction in general. This just feels like one more nonfiction book that I'll read, and it might change a lot about how I think about life, which is pretty exciting. I've heard it said that, uh, peop- I think Pinker said this, but I'm not quite sure, that that people who write popular nonfiction, who have written enough popular nonfiction, are really just fiction writers. Like They're good at portraying certain fictions. And that gets, I think that's getting at what can we know is really true and so forth. And that is what some of what Jung is already talking about, how we can't possibly have a conscious experience of everything that's important, but our unconscious does have, it must be taking a, a huge proportion in, um, he says half and half, or, or at least it's, I, th- I remember reading it's half and half, which I think that's kind of an arbitrary um, parsing of the two. Mm. Uh, but the idea that these nonfiction books have this element of fiction, but I would also say that like the Brothers Karamazov, it's a book of fiction, but it also feels like nonfiction to me as well you know it's like clear that the author takes creates an imaginary person but that imagined person is can be a case study for some philosophy for some kind of psychological 
um, neurosis or character that you know can be you could imagine this real person exists but it's a perfect example uh, it's mm-hmm. not sort of beholden or, or limited by the real world which is like more true but you know fiction can be more true than reality uh hopefully i'm not yeah confusing <laughs> things too much you know but i i just see like very huge interplay between fiction and non-fiction at this point uh, yeah and and just speaking on that i noticed that when i read fiction uh and i'm starting to realize the book is a bad book part of what frustrates me about bad fiction is is how it's not realistic and the feeling i get sometimes is almost like well, I'm not learning anything, which is interesting because I usually don't read fiction to to learn something. Uh, but but part of what turns me off of certain books is I'll I'll feel like well, you know, I'm reading about a character that does or thinks or develops in some way, and I think well, that's not realistic. It's like it's the same feeling I get when I'm watching a movie and there's some like four or five year old kid, and then they have these lines that like it's like. They're written clearly by an adult, and they're like this precocious, super intelligent kid. And I'm just like, this is not realistic. It's just dumb, you know. Anyway, just like yeah. speaking to the fiction and nonfiction thing, it's like even when we're, you know, uh, consuming fiction, um, we need it to be realistic somehow. And I think part of the reason we get frustrated when it's not is because it's like it's like it's less applicable um, and uh, it's less real, which is so. Just I think points to that same. Uh, I don't know, interesting or mysterious dichotomy between fiction and nonfiction because fiction obviously needs some realism into it in it. So yeah, and even in nonfiction, um, you would often write uh, maybe like little anecdotes or examples that technically are like micro fictions within your nonfiction and that helps you explain your point. Anyway, um, I wonder if that if all of that maps to, conscious and unconscious because that is something that Jung talks a lot about I'm not sure if it really does I don't know do you have any feelings on that hmm, that, that question is gets catching me off guard a little bit whether <laughs> it maps onto conscious or unconscious it, maybe I'm jumping for connections here just to, yeah well let me think about that a little because uh, and my unconscious will come up with an answer before uh, too excellent. long <laughs> uh, but let me, I, if, if you don't mind me, like completely uh, jumping the question or, or avoiding the sure. question for a little bit, I think, mm-hmm. so we read the importance of dreams, right? That we read this sort of sub chapter of Jung's chapter and we got to uh, a section called, let me scroll down here to it. Oh yeah, that could be something we put in the intro. We were talking about just off mic, what our intro should be. And that would be a really good thing to start with, like just where we read to. Oh yeah. That, that could be a pretty um, standardized type thing. We also, uh, well, I want you to make your point, but we also didn't do a summary yet. I don't know if we need to. Somehow it doesn't feel like we need to, but maybe we can talk about that in a bit. Yeah. Well, just to finish, we read from that from that up to past and future and the unconscious. We stopped at that next subchapter. So we read this right. one subchapter. And as far as a summary, I was trying to think of it i think it makes a lot more sense to summarize a piece of fiction i don't think you could really Uh, get an adequate summary of non-fiction right you could you You, of course you could but i think it would be less satisfying than a summary of fiction there's not a narrative 
Right. And, and we're kind of, I mean, that's sort of what we're doing now. And if we tried to summarize it, it, it almost seems like we would just be more poorly doing whatever it is we're doing now. We'd just be talking about what we think it means and how interesting it is and stuff like that. Yeah. And it doesn't make as much sense to like try to squeeze that into a two minutes and then just do it, you know, longer after that. So, okay. Yeah. Cool. So no summaries. Well, why don't I, if you don't mind me going into it, just to jump in, the, the very first bit, and it's something I've already talked about, is how how much unconscious processing there is. And, and uh, a huge mm-hmm. shortcut that we take is with symbols. That's kind of how this really gets going, is we use symbols, and use, symbols are shortcuts for, you know, we have acronyms, and those can be thought of as symbols. Um and well, he makes the point that those are actually not symbols; that those are signs. Oh, <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, I, I yeah, I just I saw the, the acronyms and I, I forgot that that's the distinction he made. But they are sort of a mental shortcut. Um, yeah. Well, how would you? Yeah, how, how would you describe the uh, the distinction? I suppose. Well, I mean, they're they're, what, without going and looking back at the text just now, I, so with a with a sign. It's something more conscious that people create, uh, and it points to something kind of known and discrete. So that's why acronyms mm-hmm. would be signs, uh, or like if I'm, you know, if I'm using sign language and I have a certain hand signal, that's a sign because everyone kind of knows what it means. So there's nothing mysterious about it. Uh, whereas a symbol, um, uh, the way at least the way Jung is defining it here, uh, which I think is a very rich definition, is like a symbol is. Um, something that points to something more than what is known. Uh, so, you know, that's why we have all these religious symbols, because you'll have uh, a symbol, but people will look at it. And part of the understanding is that we don't... It's, it's pointing to something greater. Uh, we could sit and discuss what a given symbol means without without trying to... like. It's not like we could go look it up on Wikipedia if we disagree. We would disagree, and then we would talk about it more, but we would sort of have this common understanding that there is no um, known meaning that that is sort of, you know, able to be contained or expressed. Um, And he also makes the point that signs, well, that symbols are, um, they can sort of be made on purpose, but they're, but they're often just made sort of automatically by our our unconscious. um, And they, they come naturally to us without us, um, creating them yeah, intentionally. I don't know how directly he says that, but that's definitely the, the idea I got with symbols. And it seems to be the case that we do understand them at the unconscious level, that they're rooted in that, that that's why we like can see something and feel something pretty significant about it without putting it into words. And that's not necessarily a limit of person's intellect it's just that's where those sort of definitions or those sort of ideas live and like if you can define it in one sentence you're you're, you're really just defining the surface of it yeah yeah i like that idea of, of being rooted in the unconscious and i think that's a lot of the point he's making yeah and i think this has not been really fleshed out in this chapter yet because uh, it seems like this, I still don't really know yet what this book will be about. You know, I'm going into this complete novice, not look, we were both, I suppose, not familiar with with uh, Jung's work, just knowing that he has uh, a pedigree. 
but he's trying to to discuss a huge amount of like deep subjects so he's like symbols i mean you can certainly write a book about it but then symbols in dreams or sorry maybe i'm not making the point i want to be making um it he, he he goes on to talk about how our unconscious communicates uh, in the form of dreams uh, using symbols hmm. or something to that effect naturally he says it more eloquently than i just did and uh i think that Hmm. I don't know what I think about that, but <laughs> did did you have any dreams? By the way, after I read this, I had I I noticed certain dreams, and they actually struck me as quite symbolic. Did that happen to you, for you at all? Yeah, I had uh, two dreams um, a day ago, and I have a dream notebook, and I hadn't used it for probably over a year. And the purpose of that for me is to if I have a dream and I'm like remembering it as I'm waking up, I immediately write it down in this notebook because like inevitably it will fade. Very rarely is a dream makes such an impression on me that I can remember it even, you know, a few minutes after waking up if I'm not thinking about it the whole time, mm-hmm. which is I think is very odd why it's can be so graphic and then I just can't even help to remember it no matter how much I might want to just a few moments later. So I write it down. Yeah, I had two very significant dreams that you know, I was thinking about whether to even bring that up because I have a feeling the way they talk about it, it's almost ominous how mm-hmm. revealing dreams can be. And so I worry that in sort of describing what dreams that I had, which I wrote down and have a clear account of now, uh, in describing it, I might reveal something that's significant about my psychology that I don't want floating around in a podcast. But right. I'm not sure how to deal with that idea Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I feel similarly. I also had two dreams of note. Um, I didn't write them down, but I just remember more after reading this and I, I woke up and I, I just was drawn more to like focus on them and, and sort of pull them apart. And, you know, he talks about, um, dreams being a method of communication between the unconscious and the conscious. And one thought I had in the days after is, you know, I wonder if some of that wisdom that one can unlock from dreams, if indeed one can, is is actually comes from not just the dream. It's not just in the dream, but it actually requires the conscious mind to then go and kind of pick it apart and almost like create the meaning from it. I'm wondering if that's part of it. You know, it's not like a, a dream isn't a, a packaged message created by the subconscious and then and then and then downloaded by the conscious if you pay attention maybe it's more collaborative than that but um but yeah i i also feel sort of on the fence about whether to speak about the dreams and then of course there's always the worry that uh like you know we've all heard stories of dreams where you're just really bored it's just a boring story but i think that uh that can be <laughs> mitigated yeah. to some degree just by trying to be concise um well, I'll, 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 I'll describe my dream. There's one dream that, that struck me as quite symbolic, more so the more I thought of it. Um, and then you can share or not. And, uh, and I, the, I mean, part of the reason I'm comfortable sharing this is because I have an idea of what it might mean, and I'm not so worried about people knowing that. Because Anyway, okay, so I was at this, like, um, uh, this market, uh, like an open market, and I'm about to pay for something, and I noticed my 
my pockets are empty, like my wallet and my phone aren't there, and I just had them. And so I'm like, oh shit, and I, I think someone like pickpocketed me. And then I noticed my one like wallet is back in my pocket, or no, my phone is back in my pocket. And then I also noticed someone is putting, like I feel someone putting my wallet back in my pocket as well. And I turn around and it's a goose doing this, which is, <laughs> which I told this to my what friend and, and she, she broke out laughing at that. And um, anyway, and so then I like tried to kick this goose because I feel like this fucking goose is causing havoc. And I felt the need to sort of get back at this goose. And, uh, and I couldn't quite kick him, but I, I was able to reach down and I picked it up and I threw it on the ground. And then the goose is laying there, sort of, it could be dead. It's like not moving. It's kind of ambiguous. And um, I've, I'm with someone at this market and I turn to him and I'm like, hey, we need to leave. That might be someone's goose. Uh, and I just, you know, kind of fucked it up. So we start leaving and then somehow, and this is part of the dream I don't remember, but I believe happened because I sort of remember thinking about it, but I have to somehow punish this goose again. Somehow I'm convinced I need to do it again. And I, and I do so. And somehow in that pursuit, I, I lose my sandal and then we're still leaving and I have to go back and get my sandal. And some other bird has now taken my sandal and is like, um, running away with it. So I have to run after this bird. I picked up the sandal and as I pick it up, well, as I'm running after the, the bird that's carrying the sandal has gotten smaller and smaller. And by the time I pick up the sandal, the bird has become a small feather and it just, I just shake it off of the sandal, which I have no idea what that means, but it feels somehow symbolic. I, I don't know. And then as I'm walking, like sort of getting away, there's this feeling of like I'm escaping because like we're trying to leave the market and and the animals around, I'm in this field now with animals and they're, they're very loud, but they're just kind of making like puppy noises, very, various cutesy animal noises, like chicks chirping and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And as I'm running away, I'm noticing, I'm looking at my, like the grass below me and I keep seeing these, they're like spiders. And I don't really know if they're real spiders or if they're just the husks of spiders, but they're mm -hmm. getting bigger and bigger as I, as I run, I'm seeing more of them. And even though I'm running forward, it's like if, if the dream was a movie, the, the frame would be zoomed in to the ground and I'm focused more and more on the ground and these spiders and like the danger. And that's kind of where it ends. And um, what was what struck me as symbolic and is is how I felt the need twice to punish these animals. And and then later I'm running away and feeling threatened by sort of nature. And I think what that means and this is. I thought about it over a few days and um, I think now what it means is I, I think there's part of me that's uncomfortable with so if, if there's um, if I'm watching someone's dog for example I'm pretty stern with dogs I feel like they should be trained to be you know not you know be polite don't jump up on people and stuff and sometimes that can come out pretty sternly like um, there's a dog here and he's extremely needy and if he is jumping up on me I'll kick at him I don't kick him but I'll like kind of you know, freak him out a bit and he'll yelp sometimes. And I promise I'm not that mean, but I think there's part of me that's uncomfortable with that. And, you know, mm. that sternness comes out like, like in the dream, there was this feeling like I wasn't really mad at the goose. I felt like I, I, it was my duty somehow to, to punish him. And that is how it feels to me sometimes with, well, especially with dogs and, and animals in general, even wildlife. I feel like, you know, if there's some like, I had this thing with a squirrel once he kept coming into my house. I was getting upset at the squirrel. Anyway, I, I would guess that's what that dream meant. So I don't, I don't know 
if that was so interesting, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but but I had it after I read this, and and it stuck with me. And there was there's there seems to have been a value in sort of looking at it and thinking about it, and then um, either reading or or co-creating meaning from it. Yeah. Yeah. That is, yeah, it's just the sort of, it's a classic dream. It sort of doesn't make sense. The bird gets smaller as it's carrying your sandal. You know, I was trying to think about, I was trying, I thought, you know what, I'm going to come up with sort of a, uh, what my impression of the meaning of this dream is, but I'm sort of completely unprepared to <laughs> offer any sort of impression at all. Yeah, it's all quite strange to me. And I think that, I mean, that gets into what you had said earlier and, and what I think we're getting from this, um, this first chapter is you need that conscious element to interpret the unconscious. And it does seem like the individual himself is the most keen to do that. Perhaps with the help of a learned psychiatrist, they can guide them in that way, but it's very much up to the individual. Uh, yeah, I wonder if we'll get any sort of tools from this book to be able to do that. And I suspect that we won't. It couldn't possibly get to that level of, of uh, information to be able to be a psychiatrist. And that's, of course, it takes many years of, of study. You couldn't get that from a book written for lay people. Um, well, th that, that was quite interesting. Yeah, maybe I'll, you, <laughs> like you said, there's some worry that we may both have that it's not particularly interesting. Yours was, I found interesting, but some people have okay. described dreams and it's very clear that it's only interesting to them because they were in it or because it happened to them. Yeah. Otherwise, well, it has no real merit. Yeah. Um, it's just there's an idea in this text that I want to bring up now because we yeah. keep sort of implying it, which is like a point he makes, he seems to want to make sure to make, is that uh, the symbols are very individual and the interpretations of them are, are very individual. Um, you know, he's. I don't think he mentions the idea of dream books explicitly, but... That, you know, you can get these dream books and they'll tell you what each symbol means. Um, and so, you, you you know, I you know in theory, one could get one of these dream books and then interpret the dreams. But he pushes back against that idea and he says that, you know, symbols are deeply personal things. And when you interpret a dream, um, you can't, you can only do that if you are or if you have the complicity of the person, of the actual dreamer. You can't, you know... If I were to sort of write that dream down with, especially if I didn't have any um, any of my own thoughts about it and give that to you, you would be, it maybe would be impossible for you. Well, I won't say impossible, but um, you might be able to get some of the general themes. Like maybe you could have some idea that, okay, well, the spiders and stuff, that seems like dangerous. So some worry there. But, uh, but Jung makes the point that, yeah, you need an individual. And I think actually there's like, I think near the end, um, I can't find it now. He mentions something about a key, like individuals being a key. He uses that word to describe um, the person trying to understand the symbol, but I don't know where that was in the book now. But anyway, um, yeah, well, what do you think about that? But I'm also curious if, if you would want to share your dream. Uh, yes, yeah, I definitely, yeah, I'd like to share my dream now that you've broken um <laughs> the ice with yours uh 
I, I agree with what you're saying. I don't really have a clear comment to make, but mm. it does seem to be what I'm getting from the text as well. But let me let me read my dream, and I'm just going to read it without really editorializing, or mm. I don't think I'll be editorializing, just what I wrote down immediately upon waking up. And and I mentioned the not editorial, because I'm not editorializing, but because of that, I think there will be parts that don't make sense. And I don't think it's because I didn't capture the dream well. I think my dream was really like this, but there's just logical inconsistencies that don't seem to bother you while you're dreaming Mm. only when you're not dreaming thinking about well that couldn't have made sense so why did it feel so real right Mm. that all played into it so let me yeah let me let me read it here so the first dream i've cloned myself my clone became a doctor and got a phd same age as me so perhaps not a clone but an alternate reality the clone and i are both frustrated We both have the same wealth, despite taking different paths in life. Suddenly, I realize I am looking at two versions of me. My perspective is a third version of me looking at the other two. They freeze in time. I move closer to study their faces. One face is looking at a computer monitor. The other face is looking at the first face. Suddenly, the faces meld together, but in a grotesque fashion. I can still see two faces formed onto one large bulbous head. The second face is still looking at the first face. My dream shifts from there. And then it goes on to a second dream, which I won't describe because it's even more bizarre than that one. Wow, but that and, that, uh, that alone gave me goosebumps. But yeah, go on, sorry. And Yeah, so maybe now I can editorialize. So that, that's what I dreamed, and I don't quite understand it. I mean, there's one thing about that. Like, I wasn't bothered about having a clone of myself, um, during the dream, but I remember in the dream, or maybe in hindsight later, my consciousness thinking about why was I worried about wealth? Like, I sort of try to think of wealth as unimportant, but you can't help but want wealth in life because it helps you minimize risk, like in terms of health or from natural disasters or for sort of, you know, arranging your time in the best way possible. You can rent other people's time to do things that you don't want to do, like fixing your car and so forth. So of course, we all want wealth um, to then pursue the finer things, but there's a sort of coolness about pretending not to want wealth, you mm-hmm. know, and right now I'm in a position where I'm trying to, I'm sort of, my wealth is a, is a bigger problem and it's annoying to me. So there, maybe there's not much mystery there, Um and so, but I, I have a clone of myself that took a different path and became, uh, got a PhD, so a doctor in something, and had the same wealth as me as an electrical engineer. And that frustrated me, and I actually don't know why, but there was something frustrating about taking a different path, and including, like, it's much harder to get a PhD as a doctor. And, like, that makes no sense to me, but it was this very salient, like, particularly significant moment of the dream is why was I frustrated by taking a different path? Maybe there's no reason at all. And uh, it's not too interesting to continue on that. But the second part where the faces meld into each other as like, I realize I'm not, you know, there's two people and I'm the electrical engineer that I'm comparing to the PhD, but suddenly I'm looking at the two people as a third observer, but I feel like I have a body and I'm myself, the freeze frame, they're just sitting there and then they form together. Hmm. And uh, and it's grotesque, too. It's, like, unsightly to look at because it's two faces on one head and one face is looking at the other. And, and perhaps you can understand why I was hesitant to share that. I, I mean, I'm not embarrassed by it, but 
perhaps there's something there revealing that is is uh, significant. I just don't know what it is yet. Well, I have this dream book, and uh, it, it actually says that you're the next Hitler based on that dream. So <laughs> we're gonna have to stop this podcast and cut all uh, all contact. But um, <laughs> but no, that's that's fascinating, actually. Um, uh, I mean, so I'll just pretend to be Jung here, and like what I the theme that jumped out at me is like it's your you're comparing yourself to yourself. I mean, the whole dream is about comparison of, of the choices you could make of the lives you could live. Um, and then, and I mean, to me, it seems like if, if the faces have combined and it's grotesque, it's almost like it's almost ominous or, or a cautionary thing of like, I guess the message I would pull from that if I was pressed to, I guess I'm pressing myself to now is, uh, like to, to, to agonize or focus too much on choosing the right path is going to actually then have a negative effect. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's a fascinating dream though. I mean, it's, it feels extremely symbolic, um, even more so than mine. I mean, mine felt partially symbolic, but also just kind of random, like the goose stealing the wallet. But that's the one you describe is, it seems almost like pure symbolism. Like, it, it was a, like with my dream, it was like, well, my subconscious or my unconscious is is finding places to put symbols, maybe. Whereas yours, it seems like that is a some sort of message or a particular conversation or if not conversation, maybe not something so deliberate, but at least it's it's like built out of something that's actually going on in your head uh, rather than just inserted into some some random dream like mine. Hmm. <laughs> It's, it's, it's funny, yeah, how, not funny, not funny at all, really, but there's, there's disturbing elements to even, like, talk about this stuff, and, and later in this um, text, uh, it's described, like, a man's dream that he has about a female, a degenerate female, and he can't quite map it onto his wife, like, it doesn't quite fit to his wife, and what the, what Jung then jumps to is that this female this degenerate female that this man was dreaming of was actually a his feminine psyche and that he sort of like just sneaks in there not sneaks but it was like not not uh, justified properly in a scientific sense but like here's here's how it is we have a male and female psyche mm. and this man was acting like a gentleman and would then was having dreamed and his conscious was not judging him and saying that he was a degenerate but that there was uh, like a disconnect with his feminine spirit and how he was trying to present himself and his unconscious was trying to communicate that to him in a dream. And I, I found that very disturbing. And I find my own dream disturbing. Your dream I didn't find disturbing, but it was unusual. Maybe, maybe the one thing that was, I can't quite, I don't know where to where to put it in my head is the duck <laughs> turning into a feather as it's carrying a sandal away. I don't, the sandal um, didn't feel important, but okay. But the, but it was. But, but there was something about like the way the environment around me changed from um, threatening or non-threatening and back. Like mm. I, I, I ran, and then when I picked up the sandal, it was just a feather. It was like it was nothing. And then as I ran away, the 
I guess I didn't mention this, but after that point when I was sort of running away and there were the spiders on the grass, I, I had this feeling of there were animals all around me and that I was trying to escape from them. Like it didn't feel like terrifying. Like it wasn't like I was in the woods and they were and I was running for my life. But I was trying to escape and I was trying to get away from these animals. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression there. Yeah. Now that you mention the animals, it is quite I, I, I feel very disconnected from nature. I live in Alaska, and so it's rather unpleasant for me to be outside when it's extremely cold and dark during the winter. And the idea of being surrounded by animals would be such a strong shift compared to being surrounded by you know the panels of my house and my all the technology and sort of the human artifacts around me to be surrounded by animals would be even like like benign ones would be a little bit unsettling especially especially like the spider element that you talk about i mean spiders are obviously uh quite alien creatures they don't don't really harm us for the most part but they they're grotesque to look at yeah so in a dream a spider does seem like a particularly potent symbol yeah um let me just jump back to i mean you had asked me some you sort of talked about my dream being pure symbolism uh, I can't quite I can't quite really I feel like I'm not ready to think about it yet maybe there was some reluctance I don't really know and maybe there's something there that I don't want to acknowledge or or something perhaps that I worry is ugly and my, my conscious mind is actually um, intentionally hiding it but you know I was curious I, I wonder it, it, it seems clear and I think this is maybe what you were implying right when you started talking about dreams is are we now having more vivid dreams? Are we perhaps putting more, we're certainly interpreting our dreams with a more serious sense than usual after reading this text, but are our dreams more vivid as well? Like if that's something that's a controllable factor that can be churned up in volume, you know, are our dreams more memorable and, and compelling now that perhaps our conscious knows that we're paying attention? Right. Uh, I don't know if that, do you know what I'm trying to get at there? It's like, are we having more interesting dreams after reading this? Yeah, for sure. I've thought about that a lot and I have like a couple of thoughts have come to me on that. I mean, well, after I read this, um, when I went to sleep either the next night or another night after that, I, I sort of had, uh, I just sort of said to myself, like, you know, I'm, I'm ready for these dreams or I'm, I'm happy to have these dreams. So, I mean, it was, I guess I kind of explicitly invited them. I don't know. I don't know if that really changed anything. But I also noticed that after reading this, I was just more ready to think about them. And so, and I, you know, like some people will say, oh, I never dream or I don't ever, I hardly ever dream. I don't think that's true technically. I think, I suspect, and I don't know if this is like accepted fact or if it's just something I suspect, but, um, I suspect that we all dream about the same amount, but <clears throat> we we just don't remember them if we don't think about them. Uh, and so you'll have a this belief that you never dream, even though you do, just because when you wake up, you just you just don't focus on thinking about them. So, um, and it could be something similar with this, where you know maybe we're always having these dreams that that have symbolism that we could go and mine for meaning of some sort, uh, but because we don't have that intention when we wake up we might think about a dream for a little bit um, but we're not seriously thinking about it and so it just doesn't um, it doesn't stick with us we don't 
we don't we don't go after the meaning i mean this dream about the the you know the the goose and and the and the, the animals and stuff it didn't make much sense at all when i first started thinking about it i mean symbolic sense uh it it took a while there's there's a there's a point in the book this will be a slight digression early in the in the foreword where he says that jungians tend to do this thing a style of analysis where they kind of circle he, he said he had this metaphor of like it's like the way that they'll describe something is they'll circle it um and uh and it's like being a sparrow circling a tree and going going higher and higher where you start you at first it's kind of bewildering um where you're just seeing the leaves and stuff it doesn't really make much sense but as this as you're circling this idea more and more you start to see the similarities and then later you sort of find that you understand the whole tree and he said this is a Mungian, it's a, it seems to be a common in, in uh, Jungian analyses. And the reason I say that is because it seems like that's what I've done with that dream and the other dream I had. It's like, it didn't make sense at first, but I just kept thinking about it from different angles, sort of going over the narrative. And then eventually I've, I found um, I, had these, I had this meaning attached to it. Uh, and so maybe... You know, maybe that dream just wouldn't have felt meaningful at all if I hadn't done that circling and, you know, sort of looking at it from different angles again and again. Uh, so that could be part of it. Um, I mean, I guess I think it must be part of it, at least. That's my that's my working theory. It must be part of it. I wonder, we tend to look down on superstition in our current age. It's like you believe that... You know, if you believe in a horoscope you, or, or ghosts or things like that, you're just sort of generally seen as not like you, you're either playing into it and you don't really believe it, or if you do really believe it, you just haven't taken a clear look at the evidence for it, of which like there's no good evidence to rely on to think that there are ghosts or that horoscopes can tell you anything about your life. And, you know, I, I can't help but wonder if, this is a modern era probably like why do we why did we just read a text by this uh psychiatrist psychologist i'm not sure which really carl jung and now suddenly place before i mean i would always think my dreams were interesting but i didn't put a lot of weight into them and now i have this hunk like this desire to think about them analyze them see what could be communicated i haven't fully bought in that it's my unconscious communicating with me I, that's not clear to me that that's the case um, because I, I think the mind is capable of creating meaning where there isn't any um, but you know I'm open to it certainly uh, I wonder if, if people in the past you know that were more superstitious uh, paid more attention to their dreams and didn't need a psychiatrist to alert them that there's something interesting going on when you're sleeping this could have truth to your life not not too long ago completely independent of this book I was describing a dream that I had to somebody else and they said, oh, don't put any stock to it. It's just, just like you're daydreaming. You'll dream, you'll think of unusual stuff. You know, it just kind of gets in the way of enjoying the day. You know, that sort of unusual dream that had this disturbing element, that's reason enough because it's disturbing. Don't let it, you know, um, oppress your conscious experience right now. Just forget it. And after reading this book, I'm like, why, why aren't we more superstitious? Uh, why aren't we thinking more on, on this sort of spiritual level? And maybe spiritual is a little too early to bring into the conversation right now, but uh, what is the, the bias 
against this stuff. Like we're hallucinating at night and it seems so graphic and bizarre. Like that does seem important. Why is it only just now becoming important or maybe academically important? Um, sorry, I, I, I no, suppose yeah. I didn't have a very clear point there, but no, do that, you have any reaction to that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so it just reminds me of um, this idea that I've heard more and more lately where it's it's almost a way to justify or uh, explain why we might need more than a logical rational lens like what so you know why why do we have things like superstition or spirituality or or hunches and the idea is basically like you know we can only understand so much there's a lot about the universe we don't understand we only have five senses. Russell Brand makes this point a lot. I've been re- watching a lot of Russell Brand interviews, which are surprisingly interesting. Anyway, and he says, like, you know, we only have five senses. We have limited brains, and so there's going to be things going on that we don't under that we don't consciously understand. Uh, um, but you know, we are evolved creatures, and we do have to sort of react to things. And so, why why would we assume that? the best strategy is to just consume everything logically, um, you know, make these, all these systems of thoughts and then use that. Um, and, and why would we, I, I guess the idea is these hunches we get or intuitions or symbolic reasoning or, or, you know, ominous dreams that, that could all just be, um, ways that we have of interacting with the world that we don't actually interacting with a world that we don't understand and that could actually include the inner world as well you know so i i mean none of us knows ourselves completely that's that seems to be impossible and so then that would mean there is a reality that i don't understand in myself and so um it would seem reasonable then actually to say well you know if if yeah every night i'm hallucinating vividly i should almost start from the assumption that there is meaning in there, even if not all the time, uh, because it would almost be weirder if it was just random. Like that, that would almost require more explanation. Uh, that all the dreams don't mean anything, and it's completely like that. You'd have to actually explain that randomness. You know, true randomness doesn't actually just come out in nature. That it has to be generated. Um, there's nothing that's actually, you know, truly random. Um, and so, yeah, I. It seems like part of what Jung, I think, is saying is like, given that there's more around us or in us that then we can know, then it's almost like he's defining the unconscious in that way, saying like, you know, we have our conscious, you know, experience, we have everything we know about ourselves, but there's obviously stuff we don't know about ourselves. I mean, that's clear from from all sorts of psychology. And so let's call that the unconscious. And then let's and then I guess his. uh his claim is that dreams are are how we can interface with that subconscious. Well, he says, I think symbols is is how we can, and then dreams are maybe a particular channel for those symbols. So, yeah, I don't know how exactly that maps onto what you were saying, but that's definitely what it made me think about. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, you know, I think we're kind of towards the end of, of, of covering this uh, section. I think we've been talking now for about 40 minutes. Um, maybe, maybe the last bit there that I found interesting. And again, there's a lot of here that's sort of said and stated, and it's not clear, you know, how authoritative the statement is. Um, it's, it's something that I quoted, and the quote is, 
It is easy to understand why dreamers tend to ignore and even deny the message of their dreams. Consciousness naturally resists anything unconscious and unknown. Mm. And that was like a really poignant sentence to me, but it didn't necessarily strike me as true. Right. Um, that my consciousness resists anything unconscious and unknown. It resists it. I, I feel like my conscious is curious about things that are unknown and wants to fill that gap. Yeah, that that made me think about um, this whole idea of rationality versus um, sort of a more intuitive approach or wholesome, uh, not wholesome, but uh, I don't know, whole picture approach to life. And I think there is a truth to that. Like rationality itself, I think does kind of, it has a way of looking out at life and fitting everything into its system that it's built. And then if something doesn't fit, it kind of is ignored not rejected actively, but it just doesn't, it doesn't show up because it doesn't fit into the prison that the rationale, the rational mind has built for it. So I don't know if that's what he's talking about, but it, it seemed to me like sort of the same idea. And there's definitely a, a parallel of conscious versus unconscious mind and rational versus intuitive mind. But at least for me, that it reminded me of that, that idea of rationality, which I, I've bought into completely at this point which is, yeah, that rationality is this tool that we have, but it's, it can be narrow in some ways and it can, it can just throw out data as bad data points. Um, which is, it's sort of unavoidable with any kind of scientific or rational approach. You know, if you have a, a set of data and you try to fit it to a graph, you kind of have to decide what data is valid and what isn't. And then, and then what comes along with that process is that you might be throwing out the important data just because it doesn't fit at all into what you're you're looking at so that i guess i buy into that idea i i don't yet know how i feel about him saying that it applies to the conscious mind um but i think there's truth in the idea itself <laughs> you know at this point i'm not sure why but this conversation is starting to derange me I, I, <laughs> there's so much it feels like we're talking about contradictions it feels like okay the unconscious and conscious they're okay. communicating with each other wait are they resisting each other these are fundamentally different entities but they, they're at odds with each other and cooperative or maybe they're not necessarily cooperative and that's that's where you have maybe some sort of neurosis or psychological struggle when they're not cooperating I, I don't know what to think yet, and maybe it's we're just so early that we've been represented with a lot of these ideas, and uh, I don't quite have the uh, the tools to think about them, although I sort of suspect that I'm going to become more and more deranged, because that's how people <laughs> tend to talk about Jung, is that oh, he's really? deranging, uh -huh. that he, what he says is true, but there's something about it that uh, kind of... Uh, I can't help but think of Dostoevsky, and I don't know if this will be true. I won't know until the end of the book, but there's this Dostoevsky book, Notes from Underground, and the main character says that he suffers from too much consciousness, hmm. as if consciousness was a disease. And I sometimes feel that way, too, that, that I want to be <laughs> less conscious. Not that I... In, in a way that like sometimes the most enjoyable moments of my day are when I sort of snap out of a moment of unconsciousness or deep sort of focus, but I'm not even aware that I'm focused. You mm -hmm. know, it just seems like I'm doing the right thing in the right way. Um, whereas when I'm 
really conscious is like a, a self conversation uh, that that's that tends to be um, neurotic, hmm. and this 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 text is like inspiring that uh, neuroticism in me instead of the more unconscious uh, huh. feeling. That's interesting. I don't know. Maybe I'm adopting language that I just read and don't fully understand. Well, just to put a label on one concept there, that what you were saying about being focused and snapping out of it, but the but the focus was almost an unconscious focus. That that just reminds me of flow. Have you heard of this idea of flow? Yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to describe there. Hmm. Where it's you're kind of yeah, if you become too aware of what you're doing, you'll ruin what's happening there. Just yeah. like your brain knows what to do. Right. But it's like not quite unconscious. Like you're still thinking. You have to think about the what kind of the pieces you're doing, but it doesn't get interrupted. Okay, like well, I don't know what the next step is. Oh, this is like it just you just know the next step right away. You're already doing it in some way. You can pull, yeah, flow. Obviously, there's a word for that. They got mm. a word for it. It's flow. It was a new word, but yeah, an interesting concept. It seems like a lot of people are pursuing it um, as if it's quite important, which seems right to me as well. But um, okay, I think I also I also have the feeling that we're sort of near the end here of the conversation. Um, yeah, yeah, but but I'm really excited to read more, um, and I think also, yeah, I think we're stumbling around a bit. I mean, I don't think it's it's sort of an undue amount of stumbling around, but um, probably the next time we speak about this will be a, a, a bit more on our you know on on some known ground because these ideas I imagine will just be developed a bit more. So yeah, you know, something else we could do is we could, uh, well, it's just podcast shit. We can talk about that off air. Uh, maybe we can end it here. <laughs> is there any uh, closing thoughts that you want to, you want to share? I don't want to get into anything else. I do have a lot more thoughts, but they are like all quite, sort of unformed hmm. um i think a lot of them have to do with i'm sort of wary of some points like uh maybe i'll bring this up because i do find it interesting is one point there's a statement that says consciousness formed about started to form about four thousand years ago in humans hmm. or something to that effect and uh I, I feel like this does feel a little bit dated this text uh, at least in terms of consciousness i think there's been a lot more so and the idea you know, they're not, we're not really defining these terms. And consciousness is a very difficult term to define, I feel like. It, it's fascinating to me because I just read this book, Consciousness, by Anika Harris, I believe. Hmm. And it just points out that it's the one thing that's very clear to us. It's the most clear thing in the world in our experience is that we are conscious. And yet it's also one of the most mysterious, perhaps the most mysterious things. We can't really understand. I mean, is does consciousness arise from a certain amount of information processing? That seems to be like what we take for granted, but it doesn't actually make sense really that suddenly consciousness flickers into place mm. when you have a certain amount of neurons firing. Why, why is there an experience to this at all? Why does it feel like there's something that it is? And to that extent, there's a lot of things, a lot of really complex ideas that are um, sort of, I feel, smuggled in. But, you know, having said all that aloud and sort of reflecting on it as I'm saying it, maybe that's a feature of this book is they're not going to really break down a lot of these things. It's more about kind of working with concepts that are generally known well enough by someone that would be inspired to read this book. 
and they don't need to fully define every word. And if they did, it would, it would quickly become a textbook. It would quickly become a little too dry to be enjoyable to read. So, so maybe that is a benefit now that I think about it, which I started talking about it as a negative. Mm. Um, well, it definitely is dated a bit. He uses the word primitives. He talks about primitives, <laughs> which is an interesting, like, uh, interesting thing to read from a 21st century perspective and how, yeah, he has some, I don't remember the observations, but observations on primitives and how they can be, well, it would be writing that today would be called, I think by at least some, by some people racist or I don't know, judgmental or whatever. Um, I don't really have much of a, I didn't really have much of a judgment on it, but, um, mm. another, I, another thing that I wanted to say in response to what you just said was, um, you said that he, he mentioned that consciousness only really came about 4,000 years ago. That, to, I didn't notice that the first time, but that to me also points to that. It's sort of what I was getting at earlier, which is maybe when he says consciousness, he means rationality or something, something a little closer to that. Because mm. that would also line up more with the idea of, oh, it was only 4,000 years old. Because we've been conscious for a long, lot longer, but maybe you could only say that rationality only really was birthed much more recently. Um, so, there, and, and, you know, with any dated text like this, you, 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 you do run into things like that where they're using a word a little bit differently. So, um, well, I, I guess I'm going to, we'll have to keep an eye on that, that word conscious and how he uses it and see if that, see if that's true. Maybe it does mean something more than, uh, well, different than what we would, we would interpret it as. And then of course, any writer, I mean, writing a book like this probably is defining their own terms too, which kind of complicates it, um, a bit more. Good point. Yeah, Look, watching the language, I, I that's a that's a something I'll try to focus on more because I think that we may be taking for things for granted as modern people that uh, people that read this book twenty years ago would not have taken for granted. Uh, actually, do, I didn't. I actually don't remember when this book was published. Maybe it's not important. Um, well, it was around the time where they had black and white film because that interview, which was recorded just before yeah. they started this book, was black and white. Um, yeah, true. Yeah, huh. we'll have to we'll put that in the show notes. Maybe, I you know I'm yeah, I'm worried okay. I'm gonna say I'm doing all this shit with the show notes. And I'll just not <laughs> remember any of it. I should I guess I should take notes. All right. Well, I think that's the end of of our um, consuming Jung is our tentative title, uh, and uh, yeah. So I think we'll just continue on with Jung then. Is that how you feel as well? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Let's end it there. I. I uh... Uh, this this uh, this conversation has taken a lot out of me. Okay. I, uh, ready, <laughs> ready to to move on. But yeah, I let's uh, let's end it. Sorry, now I'm really <laughs> rambling. Okay. okay. All right. All peace, right, guys. Yeah, peace, peace, peace. Thanks for listening.